Well, good morning, New City. So glad to have you both in person and online today. Uh, I want to take a few seconds before we jump into our teaching today in relationship goals. We're in our third week in this series, just to say, hey, with Mondays, like stay-at-home order going out and all of the anxiety in the world right now, whether people worried about their income or worried about their business or just you know worried about their social well-being uh, because we all need each other. We need to be around each other. This is a very difficult time. I, uh, I feel like we are looking at a series of wrong answers and <laughs> there, there doesn't seem to be any really good right ones uh, to be made in the world today. And I, and I just want to pray just a, a, a special prayer over this moment that we're in and invite God's sovereignty and His goodness into it. So, uh, Father, you've told us to cast our anxieties upon you because you care for us, and so we confess that you care for us. And we offer you our anxieties, and we also offer you our ignorance. And you have said to us, if anyone lacks wisdom, pray. And so here we are uh, in a place where the answers are hard, and all of them seem wrong, and the world seems turned upside down, and everybody's angry and frustrated and hurting. Uh, where's the wisdom, Father? We ask for it. Uh, we, we, uh, we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide our thinking, guide our thoughts, give us the wisdom. Uh, there is a passage that's on my mind, Father, about the Holy Spirit comforting us when we mourn and in such a way that we can comfort other people. And, and I, I'd be so great if you could give uh, everybody listening today, whether online or in person, a dose of comfort from your Holy Spirit that is born out of wisdom, that is born out of taking the anxiety, that's given us certainty in your sovereignty and certainty in your goodness, the kind of comfort we can give away during this time. Uh, and could you send us out as missionaries this week, uh, missionaries who bring comfort uh, to those who mourn, uh, comfort to those who are stressed and anxious. Uh, not only do we ask for you to comfort us, but we ask that you would help us to be comforters. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray for these things. Amen. Hey, speaking of, you know, um, Christmas, uh, we weren't speaking of Christmas, but we're, we, got, we got a series coming up called Living Advent. I want to make note of it. If you're in person today, we have Advent guides produced already, okay? So we're, we, uh, listen, if you're the kind of person that sets up your Christmas tree before Thanksgiving, you're weird, okay? You're, you're weird. You're a weirdo, but we love weirdos at New City, so it's all good, all right? We love weird people, and we're the kind of people that talk about Christmas before Thanksgiving. That's what we do here. And so we've got Advent Guides available uh, today uh, to, just to grab and take for your family, for your community group, uh, to do uh, personally. These are phenomenal guides. We produce them every year. Uh, we gear them towards the teaching series. You're going to be blessed by the Pastor Roger works hours and hours and hours on these Advent guides, getting them ready. We've been preparing for months, and so they'll be available online this week as well, and so watch our social media. Uh, you can certainly uh, go to our website and visit Monday, and the, the guides will be there. Everything will be ready for you to go for Advent. Uh, I want to encourage you to invite somebody to uh, worship with you this Advent season. We're talking about living Advent because Advent's not a message that we just share. It's a message we live. And so we celebrate every year hope, joy, peace, and love. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about what does it look like for us to live hope, to live peace, to live joy, to live love. What would that look like? And we're going to highlight mission partners around the city who are doing it. And we want you to be able to see them, hear their story, hear their heart, and hopefully that will mobilize you and help mobilize me this Advent season to live the message of Advent. All right. So now back to relationship goals. We're week three of this. And here's the question we've been asking in this series. What would it look like or what would it feel like 
to be in a relationship with somebody who is living the Sermon on the Mount. Like if somebody just took it seriously and they said, you know what, this sermon, where I'm going to do my best to live it, like principally live it in my everyday life, what would it feel like? What would the experience be like to be in a relationship with somebody like that? And so there, certainly we could preach for years on uh, the Sermon on the Mount and still not harvest all that's there, but we're doing some harvesting in this series, and one of the things that we harvested out of the Sermon on the Mount was this idea that, that if we were to set a goal out of the Sermon on the Mount for relationships, we could say we would set a goal to ruthlessly eliminate scorekeeping. We looked at verses like 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, and how love has this capacity to cover sins. That love doesn't keep a record of wrong. That we, we looked at Matthew 5, 44 from the Sermon on the Mount, that the kind of Christian love that we're called to, to have is the kind of love that loves our enemies. In fact, one of the ways you can see if you've got the love of Jesus in you is that those who you disagree with is your love growing for them as your love grows for Christ. You know? So those, those who are in, you're in conflict with is your love for them growing as your love for Christ is growing. So ruthlessly eliminate scorekeeping in the relationship. We talked about relentlessly protecting trust last week with truth-telling and integrity. And we connected the dots between integrity and intimacy. Integrity is like the soil. When we develop uh, cultures of integrity and trust, that's a soil that's ripe for uh, intimacy and relationships. And so we said uh, with the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 37, that we should be the kind of people who let our yes be yes and our no be no that we are a people of truth, that we live, our, we live the truth, that we become predictably true in our, in our lifestyle and our habits. Now, goal three today is this, resist self-centeredness with Jesus-centered generosity. Uh, we're going to talk about how, how we can resist the self-centeredness that sometimes creeps into relationships with Jesus-centered all right, generosity. Now, over the last few weeks, we've just kind of been noting this truth, okay? The Sermon on the Mount describes what Jesus wants us to, to, to be and what Jesus wants us to do. And so if you've been, you know, been around Christianity for a little while and you're like, I just need some guidance, okay? I need some guidance. What does it look like to be a Christian? What, what am I supposed to be doing as a Christian? You go back and you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is Jesus describing what he wants his followers to be and what he wants his followers to do. Now, in this passage, he's talking about our relationship with resources, our relationship with generosity. And I just want to begin by saying, hey, this is a touchy subject for many people. In fact, it's been my experience as a pastor that people would rather talk to you about their sex life than talk to you about their financial life because it's that personal. They're like, I'll talk about anything else <laughs> rather than talk about this because this is a touchy subject for many people. But I, here's, a, here's a challenging thought, and this was something that really impacted me this week as I was reading the passage and asking what hurdles are there to the passage, what hurdles are there to this truth. And, and this is the idea that came to my mind. I think it, it, it may be a benefit to you. It was a benefit to me. Whenever there is a subject that is too touchy to talk about, it's often because an idol is trying to protect itself. Whenever there's a subject in our lives that's too touchy to talk about, it's often because there's an idol there that's attached itself to your identity because idols attach themselves to identities. And what happens when an idol attaches itself to your identity, it becomes something you can't talk about. Like it's, it's off limits because that's too close, it's too personal, it's too, it's too near to here. 
See, an idol tries to convince you that happiness and significance can be found only in it. That's the way idols work. And so this could be true of any area of the Christian walk. That an idol comes in and says, hey, I'm going to attach myself to your identity. I'm going to make your meaning a purpose about this thing in the created world rather than the creator God. Then when this thing in the creator world becomes the, your, the source of your identity, then you get really touchy whenever that subject comes up in your life. And you've had conversations with people, and when you've gotten to something really personal, it gets really touchy for them. Usually it's really touchy because that's, that thing is somehow connected to their identity. They've connected it to their source of meaning, a purpose in the life. I think there are two ways the, ide- the idol of wealth shows up in our everyday lives. And, and this is not just like, this is like from reading the scriptures, but also just observing my own life. The two ways it shows up in my, my life, the idol of wealth is coveting what others have and coping with things. It's like just, just this low-grade discontent about life that sometimes happens to us when we are when we are de- defining our significance, our meaning, our worth, our value in things, or like when we feel down and we feel depressed and we go out and we try to cope with things. And we try to get things to be the answer to our sadness or things to be the answer to our uh, insecurity. And we try to feed our identity or feed our emotional well-being with things. But worship of our Creator God, listen to this. God is a jealous God. Worship of our Creator God cannot be shared with any created thing. God is that important. He's that important. He refuses to be shared with anything. And so our text today says you must choose. You must choose. You must choose between heaven and earth. So listen to the text in Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So we have a choice between uh, treasures on earth or treasures in heaven. He goes, you have to choose. You choose between light and darkness. So what what are you going to choose, light or the darkness? He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So the eye is healthy, the whole body is full of light. But if the eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And so he says you have to choose between light and darkness. You have to choose between heaven and earth. And ultimately the choice is between God and wealth, or God and created things, or God and mammon, or money. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so another way of saying the same idea here is that you must choose what you value most. What's most important to you? Is heaven, is is the light of God, is it God himself? What's most important to you? Is it the eternal things or the temporal things? That's what's being asked here of us. So how does this apply to relationship goals? Here, if, you're, if you are dating somebody, hoping to date somebody, you're on the front side of a relationship, I want to give you some guidance here. If you are looking for someone to spend your life with, here's my encouragement. Run hard after God. And then see who's running next to you. If you want to find somebody that you want to spend the rest of your life with, 
Run hard after God. In other words, value the most valuable things the most. And run hard after God. And as you're running, just every once in a while, you take a look over and you go, oh, you're running next to me. And you seem to be running hard after God, about the same pace that I'm running hard after God. You want to go out? Like, that's how it works, all right? So if you're on the front side of a relationship, that's what you do. And so a big question here is, in your heart, what's most important to you? What's in the center of the circle, the things that are most important to me? For where your treasure is, the text says, there your heart will be also. What's most important to your heart? What do you value the most? Listen, listen to me here, okay? This is important. Our decisions follow our values. Our decisions follow our values. So what do you value most? Because whatever you value most, it will be reflected in the everyday decisions you make. Because you will make decisions around the things that you value the most. And so if you want to evaluate, sometimes we will have stated values. We'll say, my value is X, Y, Z. But your decisions are showing that you really actually value this other thing. And it's one thing we have to look at closely. Like, how am I making decisions? Where are my decisions pointing to? What, what are they saying that I value most? Because two people who do not share the same values will not be headed in the same direction. This is how this applies to relationship goals. Two people who do not share the same values will not make decisions that lead them to the same place. Let me, let me illustrate this this way, and I've used this before, but there are three types, in my, ex, in, in, my, in my experience, three main types of relationships in the world. There are A-frame relationships, Y-frame relationships, and H-frame relationships. Now, when I say A-frame relationships, it's not really truly an A, it's usually it's usually like a lopsided A where one is straight and the other one curves in. This is like the traditional codependent relationship. This is a relationship where one person sets the decisions. One person takes up all the oxygen in the relationship. One person calls all the shots. One person is in charge. And the other person kind of gives in over time to the other person's sort of dominant personality in the relationship. Now what happens in that relationship is, and they wouldn't be stated this way, but it is true that there is in that relationship a person who says the most valuable thing in this relationship is me. The highest value is me, my happiness, my joy, my satisfaction. In a, a typical codependent relationship, what happens is in one, of these, in one of these people just becomes like the mood ring for the relationship. The other person becomes like the satiator of that person's mood. And the entire relationship is built upon keeping this person from exploding and being unhappy. And, and so one person just sort of gives in to that relationship because their greatest value is me. Now, here's what, here's what, here's what often happens. I mean, it doesn't take long, and I'll just, I mean, I don't want, I mean, this is not, I, I've seen it happen too many times, where the person who, who gives in and gives in and gives in and gives in in that relationship usually goes a period of time in their life where their emotional needs aren't met, and they go to work one day, and a coworker says to them, how are you feeling? And then they start sharing emotional content. 
And then it goes into sharing things that are really meant to be shared with a spouse, but the spouse isn't somebody you share those things with because they're all about themselves. And that's the recipe for an emotional affair that leads to an actual affair. That's just how it works. Now, in a Y-shaped relationship, it's a little bit different. You know, a couple starts off, and they kind of have some things in common, some shared values, but over time, the value systems sort of change. Oftentimes, what happens is the only thing that keeps them together is the value of their children. And I see this like later in life, like in people in their 40s and 50s and 60s, you know, what happens is their kids start growing up and their kids kind of leave the house. And what ends up happening is they end up like realizing that, that we don't share a lot of the same values. We haven't actually talked about our values in a long time. In fact, we're just been growing apart over time. And, and you value these things and I value these things. And what eventually happens is, is that this couple become roommates. They live together in the same house, but they share nothing in common. And the kids leave, and they graduate, and they're going, that's the only thing that kept us together. We should probably just kind of move on because we're this far apart by now. But the H-frame relationship is one where a couple has regular conversations. I talked about last week that kind of the dumb thing that really smart people do in relationships, real talk over date nights. Well, that real talk is real talk about what do we value most? What's most important? Are we after eternal things or temporary things? Are we after the mission of God and passionately pursuing His purpose in the world? Or are we about our own selfish desires? And, and what, you know, what are we about? Are we going to grow apart? Or are we going to grow together on mission? And an age frame relationship is somebody who grows together on mission. You see, our hearts... Fix our eyes on what's most important. And a couple in a thriving, vibrant, Christ-centered relationship have hearts that are in tune and eyes that are fixed on the same objective. And if you don't have those regular conversations where you're talking about the real things of the heart, where you're talking about what really matters and what's most important, your eyes will not be fixed in the same direction and you'll start going in different directions. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your body is full of the light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. What Jesus is teaching here is our hearts direct our eyes toward what we worship. Our hearts direct our eyes toward what we worship. This is, this is interesting. Listen to how the psalmist connects the eyes and the hearts together. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then in verse 18 of Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. My heart is seeking you. Open my eyes that I might see you. And so the heart and the eyes are connected to one another. And so here are some diagnostic questions for you. Holy Spirit, open our eyes so that we might be seen by you and that we might see ourselves. Where do your eyes consistently wander? Why? What are your eyes telling you 
about what your heart is longing for, what you worship? Where do your eyes consistently wander? I wish I could tell you as a pastor. I wish I could be like, you know what, my eyes are just always wandering towards the Word of God and His purposes and His mission in the world. But that's just not true. I'm a sinner in need of grace. And I'm constantly, so I took these questions to Vanessa and I was like, Sweetie, I got some. I spent a lot of time on Trulia this week, an inordinate amount of time on Trulia looking at houses. I don't know why. My eyes wander. And sometimes, sometimes I'm tempted, okay? Sometimes I'm tempted to cope with things or covet what others have. Because sometimes I'm tempted to find my identity in some created thing rather than my creator God. So where do your eyes consistently wander? Why? I mean, this is important every once in a while. They go, you know, if you just, just, if, if you just shared your search history with a friend and you sat down with that friend and you said, here's my search history for the last week, what would it say about what your heart desires? Why? What are your eyes telling you about what you worship? See, greed is one of the most difficult sins to see in yourself. This is why I think this is true, okay? Well, <laughs> greed will try to convince you that it's a need. It's so weird how it works, man. So greed is like so deceptive in the human heart. Because it gets in, and it's like greed immediately jumps to, uh, I, not that I, you know, that I want this, it's that I need this convinces you that it's necessary for your significance, your happiness, your joy, your fundamental enjoyment of life, that you need it, even sometimes you deserve it. Which is interesting to me. This is, I mean, I've done a lot of counseling with people over the years, and I have never had anyone confess to me the sin of greed. No one's ever said, hey, pastor, can we have, can we have some time? I'm really struggling with greed. I mean, no one does it. And when you look at how much Jesus talks about it, <laughs> see, greed's not like adultery. You don't have to tell someone they're committing adultery. It's not like you know, someone's in a bed with somebody else that's not their spouse and going, how did this happen? I don't know what happened. Who, who are you? You're not my wife. You know, it's not like it just, you know, it's, like, it's not a mystery when you're committing adultery. But somehow greed is hidden. Greed has a weird grip on us. I think this is what Jesus is getting at when he says, if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If the darkness is so, if the darkness is, 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 is so attractive to us, it masquerades as light. You think, you think what you're, you're, you're looking at is the thing that you need, but actually it's darkness, and it just fills your heart. And if the darkness in you masquerades as light, and you start to believe that it's actually light, how, how great is the darkness? Tim Keller says, I cannot preach on money as much as Jesus preaches on money, or I wouldn't have a church. Isn't that interesting? Is that touchy of a subject? Is that, is that profound of an idol? Now, I do want to say, Jesus doesn't forbid having possessions, but he does, for, for, he does forbid possessions having you. And that's what often happens. You know, 1 Timothy 5.8, the scripture says, but if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his, of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. There's certainly truth to storing up 
wealth, providing for those in your care, taking care of your family. Certainly those things are important. But just to get the order right, we do, we do not use God and trust money. We trust God and use money. That's how it works. Our trust isn't in our things or isn't in created things. It's in God, the Creator. And so Jesus gets really clear with us in Matthew 6, 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. I won't share the throne. For either he will hate the one and love the other. In other words, life will make you choose. Or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't serve both the creator and the created. So what does greed do in our hearts? Why is it detrimental to relationships? Well, greed darkens our hearts to people. It darkens our hearts to, to, to people. It makes you the center. That's how it works. I need this. Got to have this. What matters most is achieving this or getting this or possessing this. And, and then what happens is you start sort of turning a blind eye to people. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if the eye is healthy, your whole body's full of light. But man, when the eye is bad, your body's full of darkness. It darkens the heart to the needs of people. And there are a few things that will rip apart a relationship faster than envy. Man, this is, when you, when you look at like what goes on in the human heart, when people are in a relationship and they're worshiping the created rather than the creator, and they look at that relationship over there, or this relationship over here, or that person's you know, Instagram marriage over there, or that person's Instagram life over here, and your heart gets so full of discontent and so full of envy, then nothing will rip apart a relationship faster than your just low-grade discontent in your home over time. Love is patient. It's kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Let me put it a slightly different way. When temporary things eclipse eternal things, darkness covers the heart. When when temporary things like stuff, right, when it eclipses eternal things like people, darkness covers the human heart. And so the antidote to greed is generosity. Generosity is the antidote to greed. And I was reading this week, rereading actually John Stott's The Message on the Sermon on the Mount, which is just so good. And by the way, I've encouraged you to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So pick up the commentary on the Sermon on the Mount by John Stott, and it will serve you well, my friend. This is what John Stott says. This topic confronts us with fresh urgency in our generation. As the world's population continues to mushroom and economic problems of the nations become more complex, the rich are still getting richer. The poor are still getting poorer. We can no longer turn a blind eye to the facts. The old complacency of the bourgeoisie Christianity has been disturbed. There's been a fresh discovery that the God of the Bible is on the side of the poor and the depraved. The God of the Bible is about people, and people matter more than things to Him. Responsible Christians are uneasy about affluence 
and are seeking to develop a simple lifestyle which is appropriate both in face of the world's needs and out of loyalty to their master's teaching and example. You say Christian people awaken to the Sermon of the Mountain are not valuing things over people. They value people over things. I think there are two key biblical understandings that do inform our generosity. One is that we are sojourners, not settlers. We've talked about this throughout this year because I've never felt more unat home in this world <laughs> than 2020. I mean, this is like when I was a kid, we used to sing this song in, in church. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. You know, uh, our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And we used to sing this song about what was in store for us in the future. I've never felt <laughs> more not at home than 2020. In 1 Peter 2.11, Peter says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against the soul. There's an there's a early Christian apologetic that was written in about AD 130. No one knows who it was from or who it was to, but it's just somebody writing an apologetic, a defense of the Christian faith. So this is 130 years, so 100 years after the time of Christ. And here's what the apologetic was. This is how the, the early church was described. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They had a unique position on life. They have a common table, but not a common bed. Sanctity of marriage was a value for the early church. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Interesting how the church sort of saw itself in its early days. How Christians saw themselves in its early days. As sojourners, not settlers. Another key biblical principle is that we are stewards, not owners. A verse we quote often in our home is Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. The way we say it in our house is everything belongs to God, nothing belongs to you. It's all His. Which is my encouragement here, and I know that there, I've said that there's no subject more touchy, but here's my encouragement. I think this should be a regular part of Christian dialogue. That we should talk about our generosity, inspire one another to be generous in everyday conversations. I think our relationships would be so much full of life if we talked as much about the things that we were going to be generous to as the things that we wish we had. Maybe a little bit more. Wouldn't it be interesting if a culture of generosity began to take place in the context of a relationship? How that might change the shape and makeup of that relationship. 
where the, the eyes weren't consistently being directed towards uh, something I covet or something I need to cope, but my eyes were directed towards the needs of other human beings, and those needs drove my generosity, what that might not do to the human heart in the context of relationship, how that might not spill over to whole life generosity, not with just with my money or my wealth, but with my life and my time and my energy and my affection. How might that change a How might that change a marriage if the eyes weren't consistently fixated on the things that we don't have? But our eyes are awakened and open to the the needs of the world around us. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let's consider how to spur one another on in generosity. See, Jesus-centered conversations about generosity, they untether us from earthly thinking. They have a way of just sort of untethering us from earthbound thinking. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, pragmatically speaking. Moth and rust destroy them thieves break in and steal them, it's not a good investment. It's investing in the temporary. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Pragmatically speaking, this investment lasts for eternity. Moth and rust doesn't destroy it. Thieves can't break in and steal it. It's a secure and valuable and ongoing investment. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm going to read this slide, then I'm going to explain to you why I wrote it. One way to strengthen a relationship is to talk about and agree to a shared sacrifice of generosity for a purpose that you believe in. Um, you know, there's a lot of times where, like, in relationship goals, Vanessa's like, man, uh, we should be listening to that message. <laughs> You know, she said, we've had these conversations at home. And I, you know, I said, you know, the one area in our, in our marriage where I feel like God has blessed us is that we've always had agreement on the sacrifices we've made for the purpose of the kingdom. And this is, this is I, I didn't plan to say this, but this is kind of a funny story. Like when Vanessa and I were dating, I asked her if she wouldn't mind. Uh, we, she, I, I wouldn't kiss her until I knew, I mean, I wasn't like I kissed dating goodbye or whatever, but I didn't, I didn't want to kiss her until I knew that she was going to be the one. I didn't know she was going to be the one unless like she was committed to ministry because I was called to kingdom purpose and I needed her to be sure she was called to the same kingdom purpose. And I asked if she wouldn't mind meeting with a couple of pastors' wives before we agreed to date anymore. That's how weird I am, but she, she agreed to it. And so, look, you Luckily for me, she still married me, but it was early on in our relationship. We were, we were both like just wanted to make sure we were radically committed to the kingdom purpose of God. And I can tell you, friend, there have been times where God has called us to high sacrifice. Sacrifice I'm not going to share with you here, but just high sacrifice for the kingdom. And that not only that agreement in that sacrifice, but also the... Um, the togetherness. I mean, it's, it's, it's been one of the, the richest experiences of our relationship. 
And I can tell you that if you are looking to, to create a, relation, a richness in a relationship, um, make sacrificial generosity and conversations about it and kingdom-focused, God-centered thinking a part of it. And it's remarkable how it ripples out into other areas of your relationship. Again from John Stott, what then? What Jesus forbids his followers is the selfish accumulation of goods, extravagant and luxurious living, the hard-heartedness which does not feel the colossal need of the world's underprivileged people, the foolish fantasy that a person's life consists in the abundance of his possessions, and the materialism which tethers our hearts to the earth. So here are some questions for discovery just in your life. Whose generosity inspires you? That's a question that many people can't come to an answer to because that's how little generosity is talked about. <laughs> but whose generosity inspires you? It's a worthy question. Even if the question brings up a blank, that blank should teach you something about the attitude of Christians towards generosity. But a follow-up question, whose generosity focuses your attention on eternal things over temporal things? Whose generosity is, is calling you towards kingdom purpose living? Second Corinthians 4.18, we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Our eyes are fixed on eternal things. And I believe this with all my heart. There's no cause worthy than the, missions, the mission of God at work through the people of God. There is no cause more worthy but when it comes to generosity, you cannot give what you have not received. 2 Corinthians 8 9, when it comes to generosity, has been my just, it's the, it's the memory verse that comes to my mind. It's the one I repeat most often. It's the one I keep going to. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus, who was rich in heaven, said, Father, I'll leave the riches of heaven. I'll be born as a peasant baby. I'll live the life that they could not live for themselves. Perfect and complete. He had no place to lay his head. I'll die on the cross naked and beaten, made fun of, spat upon for their sins. I'll sacrifice for them. He was buried in the tomb. He rose again. He conquered sin and death. That's what he did. And I can tell you, friend, the more aware you are of Christ's generosity towards you, the more generous you will become towards others. And if you, are, if you find generosity conversations hard, generosity in the context of your relationship, your marriage, generosity in the context of your, your wealth and your resources, generosity in the context of any other area of life, when you find generosity a difficult conversation to speak to, it's probably because you're not fully aware of the generosity you've, you've received from Jesus. And so I'd encourage you to go back to the cross of Christ and evaluate the generosity you received. Not only the debt that's been paid, but the inheritance that's been given. Not only has he paid the debt, but he's given you his inheritance. The more your eyes are drawn toward eternity, the less your eyes will wander towards the temporal. 
The more your eyes are drawn to the eternal, the less your eyes will be drawn to the temporal. I do mean this, okay? I do mean this. I mean, I mean everything I say, but I don't mean I really mean this. There is nothing that is better for a marriage than an agreement on who you worship. There's nothing that's better for a marriage than an agreement on who you worship. And there's no better test of what or who you worship than how you spend your money. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are the goals? Ruthlessly eliminate scorekeeping. Man, just be, God has given you grace. He's covered your debt. Man, love covers sins. Love even your enemies, even when your enemy happens sometimes to be your spouse or a friend. Relentlessly protect trust with truth-telling and integrity. Like live, like live consistently. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And today, resist self-centeredness with Jesus-centered generosity. Fix your eyes on who you worship. Run hard and fast after him. If you're not, if you, if, you, if you want to find some friends that you want to run with, then run hard and faster to God and look to the left, look to the right. Who's running? Make them your friends. You want to find out who to date? Run hard and faster to God. Look to your left, look to your right. Like, that's who, you, that's who you need to take out. And if you're married, you need to have strong conversations. Who do we worship? What has God called us to? You know, we started Be Good News at New City, the initiative that we're kind of in this year and next year. We said this, this generosity season for us was about being four people in the city with our lives. And I would just tell you where my, my mind is thinking right now for the people in New City and how you can be praying. Because this pandemic has caused suffering. And here's the irony, here's the irony of it all. I mean, I'm just being truthful with you. Friday, I mean, this week was my birthday, Wednesday was my birthday, Friday I went golfing with some friends. And on Friday during the governor's announcement, I was golfing. And one of my friends, who's also a pastor in town, went in to, to get a sandwich for, when we were kind of turning the from the front nine to the back nine, and he came out and he goes, The girls inside are broken up. Because they don't know how they're gonna make it on unemployment. There are people who own businesses that are wondering, can we, can, we, can we do it for another two-week shutdown? Can we do it? And so I've been praying over that Hebrews passage. Let us, let us spur one another on to love and good deeds. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Where, where is it? And I'm asking the Holy Spirit, please reveal it. Because I'm not sure the best way to love in this season that we're in but I do know we've made a commitment to be four people in this city with our lives. And so you can be not only in prayer for New City and our leadership, but you can be in prayer personally because while there are many who are not impacted financially by what's going on in the world right now, there are many who are. And they're in need. It's our responsibility to meet that need. 
And I don't, know, I don't know how to do it yet. I'm asking the Lord for wisdom. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help us to have eyes that, are, that, that see the need in the world you want us to see. Collectively lead New City Church to see the same thing. To have hearts that, that melt for the things that your heart melts for. To have eyes that see the needs that your eyes see. To have the courage to be generous and meet those needs. Father, I, I ask for your blessing on every ministry we're able to bless during this Christmas season, that you would help us to, to be richly blessed, that we would bless ministries that are serving those who are most vulnerable, most exposed, most in need. Uh, give, us, give us some answers, some things we can do to better represent you to the world. Thank you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We had our teaching times with, with three movements, generosity, communion, and prayer. And generosity, you can give to New City online on the app, you know, in the box. But also, I, I would encourage you for today's message specifically, if you're watching with somebody, if you've got a friend, you got a spouse you're with, somebody you're close to, it might be good to have a generosity conversation with them. To talk about how can we be generous during this season. And as you break the bread, remember Christ's body broken for you. As you take the cup, remember his blood shed for you. Remember, he who is rich became poor, that in his poverty we might become rich. Like that's the gospel message. And it may be like simple solutions like buying local for this season. I feel like Target and Amazon and Lowe's and Home Depot are going to make it. I feel like they're going to do all right. But I, I know that there, there are some things that we could do that might be ways to live out our, our faith. Like if there's a ministry we've profiled to you at New City over the last few years that's got your heart, maybe it's time to be generous there. To just really evaluate, like, are my eyes wandering towards the things that I value most? It's also time for prayer, and we encourage you to seek out prayer counselor online. If you're watching online today, uh, we'd love for you to, to pray today, just to ask the Lord for His wisdom. Let's stand together, let's sing, let's give God glory and honor.